Welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Someday is Here. I am your host, Vivian Mabuni. Uh, Some of you are detail-oriented and some of you are not. Those of you who are detail-oriented may have noticed a change in the name of our podcast. So, the the story is this. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, someone trademarked Someday is Now, and with that came a cease and desist letter. So as the team rallied and as the fabulous executive producer Chantel looked into things, um, we realized that it just was going to get very complicated to continue with the name Someday is Now. To which, of course, I was devastated because on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFJ and the NF means that I assign meaning to everything. So for those of you who have been with us from the beginning, you understand that the name Someday is Now came from the RV. And for those of you that haven't heard that story, you can go to the very first intro episode and it uh, explains how the name came about. But that brings us to the new name, Someday is Here, which, as I'm sitting in it, is actually even more motivating because now is a time word and here is a place word. And the the same essence and purpose for this podcast rings true and remains true and actually has even more strength to it. So I'm thrilled with our new name and the initials no longer spell sin. <laughs> so someday is here and we are here and I'm glad you're here. So that's the backstory of our new name. This week, I am thrilled to introduce to you this week's guest, Helen Lee. Helen Lee is not only a brilliant leader, she's also a dear friend. And we've known each other for a good number of years now, and I'm so thankful for her consistent encouragement and input um, in my life and in the lives of many, many women I know. Helen is um, a leader and has been in the publishing world for over two decades. And she is a woman who is generous and smart, down to earth and passionate. And I think you're gonna really love our conversation um, this week. So I'm so excited for you to meet her and I hope you will follow her on all the social media places and get a hold of her book, The Missional Mom. It's excellent. Uh, Helen is such a gifted writer. She writes crisp, clear, concise, compelling words. Everything I've ever read written by her has just been excellent. 
So without further ado, my friend Helen Lee. Welcome back to Some Days Now, and I am thrilled to have here with me Helen Lee uh, as uh, a guest on Some Days Now. So, Helen, I would love for you to share maybe how we know each other and then some of your ethnic journey. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, thank you, Vivian, for having me on your podcast. It's a huge honor, and I'm just delighted to be here. So thank you for inviting me. And as for how we know each other, it's been a while now. We probably know each other for at least a decade, although I've, I've stopped counting, not that we're older or anything like that, <laughs> what we're real ages on this podcast. But we, I feel like we've known each other for the better part of 10 years when we first got to know each other at the Synergy Conference that Carolyn Justice James had organized for women leaders. And at that time, you were interested in writing a book. I think that you had not actually gone to the step of writing the proposal quite yet, right? We were just dialoguing about your journey, your own personal journey, your journey with cancer, and how you felt really motivated and, and inspired to write about your journey so that other people and other women in particular could benefit from that story. And as we got to talking, I ended up working in Christian publishing, working in book publishing as an editor. And I think that journey of myself going through writing, editing, and you um, starting to pursue writing yourself we just got all connected in multiple ways mm -hmm. and help support each other through those respective journeys and so it's been so fun to see you move on way past me you've written now multiple books which is awesome <laughs> yeah multiple but yeah <laughs> well I think of you Helen as someone who really took time I think seeing you know me with absolutely zero understanding and you had published your book the missional mom, which we will hook up in all the links and everything. But um, just, I think what I so appreciated, I think as an Asian American woman and understanding how few mm -hmm. Asian American women have yes. been published. So I just felt like you were just so generous and continue to be so generous in very being very open-handed about sharing information. I remember you were my go-to person with every single question, like, what, what does it mean to query? <laughs> or what is the new language? I don't understand anything about publishing. And you were such a, um, a friend and a lifeline and a trusted source even to know, like, can I trust this? Is this legitimate? You know, so I just so appreciated that. And I just feel like that has really uh, been the foundation of our friendship over mm. years. But I've just loved, we, so Helen lives in Chicago land. I learned that that's a term, Chicago <laughs> land. It's yes, uh, yes. the heart of Chicago, kind of outskirts of Chicago land. Yeah. And then I live here in Southern California, but we try to see each other whenever we're in proximity of each other. Absolutely. It's, yes, yes. So yeah. we share that stint on the If Gathering stage, which was mm -hmm. and very intense, but good when we were on that panel together about racial reconciliation. Right. So that was a pretty powerful moment too. And it's been great to see you continue in your ministry with IF and with the IF gathering. So yeah, love to cheer you on and for you in those spaces too. And I think what you said earlier about there are so few of us in whatever space it might be. I mean, especially when we're talking about more public kinds of forums, um, places where there are conferences, places like the publishing, or you can name whatever that context is. 
because there are lots of places where there are still too few of us or very few of us. I think those of us who are in those spacious spaces who are Asian American women, and we can support one another. It's a huge, huge help. So yes, happy to continue to do that. And I know you have continued to do that for me and others. So it is, it's been great to partner together as friends and coworkers in the spaces that we're in. Linking arms. I love that. Well, share with us a little bit of your ethnic journey. Like, tell us your background and some of that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am a second generation Korean American. Um, my parents, they both immigrated separately, individually to the U.S. on their own and met on a blind date in one of the most American ways you can meet <laughs> a potential spouse. They barely knew each other, uh, but felt like, my dad felt like, kind of similar. There aren't that many of us here in the U.S. at that time, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, late 60s when he met my mom and felt like I had to take a leap of faith. I, I don't know her super well. She doesn't know me super well. We live in two different cities and are trying to get to know each other long distance, you know, on the telephone <laughs> in, the most, <laughs> in the most archaic way, right? We can't even imagine that nowadays. Um, they probably met in person maybe twice before they got engaged six months. Really? Wow. So very much a, a leap of faith and have sustained that marriage relationship for more than 50 years now. It's been yeah, amazing to see. So um, I was born in Washington State, actually, on the eastern side of Washington in a little town called Spokane. Oh, I've been there. Yes. Yeah. Not so very I, many Asians. Not many Asians. No, my dad <laughs> was certainly one of the only, if not one of the very, very few uh, Asian international students at that point. Um, in his uh, graduate school programs and doctoral programs. And so he has told me a lot about how those were really hard years, mm -hmm. trying to struggle and get a PhD in economics with a in a second language. I just can't even fathom. I can barely speak my first language. <laughs> so <laughs> able to do an academic degree in a second language just still boggles my mind. But that's what he was doing in uh, at the time, uh, was getting his PhD in economics. And so I grew up actually in Washington State for the first five years of my life. And then my dad got a job as an economist um, for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So I grew up essentially after that in the Washington, D.C. area, where there was more diversity, generally speaking, um, lots of folks from lots of different backgrounds, which was helpful. So I grew up uh, in a Korean church. That was where I met a lot of other Koreans. <laughs> and well, I hung out a lot with the other with the other Asian kids, and so I had a core group of close friends who were all Asian American, Chinese American, uh, for the most part, and they were my my closest friend group. But you know, even with all that, even with growing up with two parents who were Korean and having friends who were Asian and going to a Korean church, even with all that, I don't think I really understood what it meant to be Korean. I don't even think I had true awareness of what it meant to be Korean until this incident happened when I was in sixth grade. So I was in the classroom and we were doing some sort of exercise or filling out some sort of form. And there's that, there was a question on this form where you were supposed to identify what your racial category was. I mean, are you this, are you that, are you Asian, are you black, are you white, etc. And the teacher, for whatever reason, I don't even know to this day what her motivation was, if there was anything, just whether it was ignorance or something <laughs> darker than that. But anyway, she said to the whole class, now all of you will check this box that says white, except you, Helen, you're going to check this other box that says Asian. Wow. And 
I just remember that moment feeling completely, completely shocked and surprised and sh- and shame, ashamed. Mm-hmm. Everyone started staring at me and looking at me like I was an alien. You know, mm-hmm. it was the first time I had ever been marginalized in such a public and distinct way because of my ethnic background. Yeah. And I don't think before that moment I had really truly even internalized that I am Korean, Korean American. I mean, I knew it, you know, on some level, but it, it didn't bother me. Uh, I didn't feel anything really about it. It was just a reality. But after that particular moment in the classroom, I just felt ashamed mm-hmm. of my ethnic background. And I very much wanted to disassociate myself with anything Korean. Like I didn't want mm-hmm. anyone to call me Korean or Korean American. I didn't want to identify myself that way. It felt like it felt like a, a negative mark on my identity. I wanted to try to be as non-Korean as possible. <laughs> so I would map my mom. My mom says I would never want to even talk about marrying somebody Korean one day. I just wanted to completely distance myself from being Korean. So that went on for years. I think that for even all the years uh, through high school, um, into college, it wasn't until college where things started changing. I think that's so typical for many of us who start to just grow into a, an understanding of our own identity. We seem to hit that those college years, which are so formative. And uh, I spent the first year basically hanging around my, my mostly you know white friends. I went to a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, Williams College, which at that time did not have any Asian Americans attending. So it was easy for me to just hang out with people who were not Asian. Um, and I, I hit my sophomore year, and that second year, I felt this stirring in me. Like, I noticed there is a Korean, Koreans of Williams um, club that mm-hmm. I had not paid any attention to my first year. But my second year, I just felt like, I want to go check that group out. And mm-hmm. I never, ever before felt like I wanted to do anything Korean-oriented until that moment. And when I started hanging out with them, we started just finding ways in this rural small town in Massachusetts, way, way, away from anything Asian or Korean. Somehow they found a way to have like Korean food on campus. I don't know. Someone, <laughs> someone would bring stuff back from going home or someone would make the trip to Albany, which is our closest city, and Albany, New York, which is an hour away, and maybe they'd bring something back. I'm not even sure how they got <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> right? You can find kimchi every now. Kimchi is everywhere, right? right. But back then, you oh, know. Yeah. It's uh, contraband, I guess. <laughs> not easy to find in that corner of Massachusetts, but it became a real healing experience for me to be around other Korean Americans who weren't upset about being Korean American, who mm-hmm. leaned into it, who expressed great pride um, about it and who bonded together over it. So that was kind of the beginning of a switch for me. And from that point on, I was associated with all the different Korean American and Asian American groups on campus. Um, It led me to the point when I was in my senior year, I went to a, it was a conference for Asian American leaders in the whole kind of New England area. Um, It was a small conference. It wasn't, Again, at that time, you know, that not tons and tons of Asian Americans in New England. Um, and so I think there were only 30 of us at this conference, but it was life-changing for me. It was the first time I think I saw my ethnic identity as a Korean American, that it wasn't an accident, but that it was a blessing, that it wasn't a curse, 
but it was something that I could celebrate. Mm. I don't think I had ever thought that way up to that point in time, you know, up until that particular year, my senior year of college, Mm. before had anyone articulated to me or I had articulated to myself, the way that you've been created, the fact that you are Korean, it's not an accident. It's for a purpose and it's Mm. good. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It is. I love that. I mean, it just seems like for the majority of Asians that I know, there's that this journey of wanting to oftentimes, especially growing up in a predominantly like majority culture environment where there's just this this um, wanting to fit in and trying to distance. Uh, but then there is this kind of an embracing of. Like, yeah there's some great things about being Korean American or Chinese American or um, some of it's, it's like you, like you just described. It's not, it's not a curse. There's yeah. some really great redeeming qualities. And I would love to hear what is, what is something you are proud of today mm-hmm. as, as, you know, as you've journeyed since you know college, just a few years ago, a few years back, <laughs> but it, along in your journey, what are, what is something you're proud of now? Yeah, I love now seeing just the greater ubiquity of, especially Korean Americans in popular culture. I and mean, that, that may sound totally shallow, but it makes a difference. I mean, the way, whether it's even K-dramas, how those have become embraced by, just globally embraced. And yes. I know that's not Korean American, that's obviously Korean Korean culture right there, but but still to see how widespread the fandom is for that particular cultural output from Korea um, is really exciting to see. Of course, there's K-pop, you know, oh, BTS, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I wasn't a huge fan of Gangnam Style when that song came out. Right, that right. moment made me feel like, oh, of all things to like, you know, to yes. in American culture, why must it be this particular song, <laughs> yeah. which felt like it was almost felt like people were kind of laughing at him, and sure. you know what I mean. He was yes. a more comic relief, but I feel like now since then there's been other things that have happened which are good. <laughs> seeing obviously seeing the success of people like Sandra Oh and yes. John Cho and even Steven Yeun, like one of my favorites from Oh the- yes, <laughs> big fan. Yeah. Kim's Convenience. I mean, there are. Yes. I think uh, it's it is a time for the. Korean Americans and uh, Canadians and and you were married to a Korean Canadian so I am so I did finally although I didn't marry a Korean American so I stayed true to that particular <laughs> never gonna marry a Korean American I did marry a Korean so I married a yes. Korean yes indeed so we love Kim's convenience and it's been yes. fun to see how that show has taken off so you know in books and writing there's been so many more Korean Americans telling their story um, and particularly in fiction which I love seeing because I didn't grow up reading Korean American authors you know hardly ever hardly ever and in terms of the intersection with even publishing yeah, I didn't even have a vision for myself that I could do something like that like I love to read I grew up loving to read loving to write but no one ever said to me, hey, have you thought about publishing or communications as a career path? That wasn't something that I saw anyone doing. My parents didn't encourage it. I don't even know if they would have known or known the language or even known the words to try to encourage me. They just wanted me to be a doctor. (laughs) All all their friends kids. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah. 
That's doctor, true. lawyer, or finance, right? Those are the they're business, you know, those kinds yes. of pathways. Um, so yeah, I didn't even discover publishing until later on in my adult years. Um, so it took a while for me to even own that as a possible career path. So role models are important, uh-huh. um, so, so important. And even with my own kids who are now you know, 16, 14, and 11 years old, um, even though they've grown up in a family that talks a lot about ethnic identity, we talk a lot about what it means to be Korean, American, Korean Canadian. Um, we try to find ways to continue to elevate um, either people we see who are Koreans out there in the world doing whatever. Um, uh, we just try to make that a constant part of our conversation so that our kids can internalize that, not that they should be overly nationalistic about it, but just again, have an internal sense of this is the way I was created and it's good. Mm. Um, even so, uh, my son, there was a really painful moment that I remember him saying to me one night, this was when he was about 12 years old or so, maybe, yeah, 12 or 13. And he said that he didn't think he was attractive. And I said, where are you, where are you getting that from? You are such a handsome boy. Mm-hmm. And again, not that it should be all by, by appearance, but for whatever reason, he kept thinking in his mind that he wasn't attractive. And he said, well, I don't look like all the other boys around me because it's true in his school. He's, even though we're in Chicagoland, he, demographically, there are not a ton of Asian Americans or Korean Americans in his class. And he said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not white like the other kids. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm not as attractive. And I just, I mean, that was like a dagger through my heart. Like, are you kidding me? And even after all we've tried to do to be very explicit about the message that the way you're created is good mm-hmm. and your ethnic identity is a gift. Even so, because he is growing up in a cultural context where he doesn't always see other people like him, the message that he's internalizing is what's normal is the majority culture. And I'm not part of that majority culture, so I'm not as attractive or I am lesser than. And it just blew me away to realize we have to be even more explicit and even more intentional about messaging out to our children, <laughs> to the next generation, um, that this is this is the reality that you are potentially growing up in a context, depending on where you live in the United States of America, where you might be in the minority, mm-hmm. but that does not make you lesser than. It does not make you less valuable, less anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they're not hearing that message intentionally elsewhere, I think they can. I think that they sometimes discredit it when it comes to their parents. Like, he even said to me, "You're my mom. You're supposed right. to say that. <laughs> you think um, I'm, a, yeah. You think I'm great and handsome, no matter what. But right. no, that's it's what he said. So if he's not hearing that elsewhere, you yeah. know, or receiving those positive messages elsewhere um, from other influential figures around him, then yeah, he'll continue to believe that. So I'm so glad he articulated it because it made me realize, mm-hmm. oh, goodness, I have to." You know, I, I think I'm talking about it enough, but maybe I'm, I'm still not. So, well, you know, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I think I also I have two sons and a daughter. So in the same way, when I think about my sons and them, they're older than your sons. So this is kind of a little bit pre John Cho, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> but just for them to not have anything that's viewed in media for the Asian male in particular. Yeah, yeah. Is, Either he's a villain, mm-hmm. or he's really dorky and awkward, socially awkward. You know, that's why Crazy Rich Asians was such a game changer for me, I think, because yeah. the lead was handsome. Right. You know, the, I mean, just 
seeing like even his best friend had, you know, a six pack or whatever, but it was just like this, it just changes the narrative to be able to begin to uh, see examples of even men who are not socially awkward and just a villain doing karate, you know, that kind of a thing. So I just think, especially for uh, the Asian male, I think that's been pretty, a constant struggle. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then sadly for the women, for Asian women, unfortunately, it's either the total dragon lady or yes. this exotic yes. you know, Asian fetish kind of role. And it's just so uh, demeaning right. and limiting and inaccurate. <laughs> so, right. Right, right. Yes. I mean, you're adding that dimension. I don't have girls, so I haven't had to think about that aspect as much for my own kids. But you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. You have another layer there of the gender piece to to think about and to try to combat the negative images that are out there. But uh, what you're saying about the Asian male stereotype, I think, is, is a very real factor. And so you brought up Kim's convenience. I mean, my kids in particular, I think, love that show because they love the character of Jung, who is the, the son. Yes. And he's played by Simu Liu, who's not himself Korean, but since the character is Korean, yes. um, Korean-Canadian, they, they love that depiction of Jung as being this, this eye candy. Total eye candy. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. And they, they love following him. And Yes. yes. Yeah, so they, they've enjoyed, and I've enjoyed watching them just find a, a role model, so to speak, who uh, who embodies a different, yeah, a different kind of image of Asian American masculinity. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, we're trying to counter that with, of course, it's not about the appearance. Right, <laughs> the character. Yes. But, mm-hmm. but still, I think it is. I think it is uh, really exciting for them to see an Asian male lifted up in a way that's very atypical in yes. modern uh, modern pop culture. Yeah. Well, yeah. it seems, I, I think it's, sadly, uh, it's kind of like perception is reality. Yeah. And until we change the uh, perceptions, mm-hmm. people assume certain things about entire groups of people. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that happens over and over. So. Yeah, over and okay. over. Well, I have a fun question for you, okay. Helen. What is one of your favorite Asian comfort foods? <laughs> well, gosh, I, this is such a fun question that it's so hard, so, so hard to narrow down. Um, but can I tell you more than one? <laughs> of course. I mean, <laughs> we could be here all day. We'll just list them off. But no, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, so I make a mean kimchi jjigae. So kimchi jjigae. Kimchi, of course, is the kind of national food of Korea pickled cabbage. It sounds horrible. Fermented pickled cabbage. Who would want to eat that? But uh, but it is one of the most healthy foods in all of the world, I think. Um, and uh, what my mom would often make, it was just easy. Like immigrant mom didn't have much time. She needed to be able to make something fairly quick that didn't involve lots of like prep time. Yes. You know, as someone who would be working 13, 14 hour days and would have to come home and feed us. So kimchi jjigae is a stew. It's just a, it's a basically a, it's like a kimchi stew, spicy kimchi stew. Mm-hmm. But there's like no ingredients in it. It's kimchi and it's water and it's some sort of meat protein, which for us was always pork. Just throw all that into a pot and you simmer it for 45 minutes to an hour and boom, it's delicious. It's delicious. You know? Is that the dish that was in Always Be My Maybe? Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's yes. one. Totally. Yes. 
I loved that. Yes. I do you know how how amazing that was for me to see Kim Chichiga featured mm. in the movie? I mean, I just felt all of a sudden this huge sense of validation. Not just that, also the spam. I mean, that was my go-to. Yes. 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 Immigrant mom, no time to cook. We had kimchi, rice, and spam. Kimchi, yeah. rice, and spam, and kim, and the seaweed. You know, that was like our go-to dinner. So many nights. <laughs> yes. Well, I never had a problem with it. Day was day was tasty. You had all your basic food groups, and so yes, yeah, so seeing those meals depicted in that movie was just so, just so. I don't know. It was so healing in so many ways. It was so validating. I think validating. I totally agree. I I felt the same way, and there was no needing to explain it. It just was. It just was. Yeah, it just was. Yeah. Chopsticks up. You know, this is. This is exactly what right. We eat, so yeah. I I love that. Yeah, I mean, a newer Korean comfort food or Asian comfort food that's kind of a neat because it feels like. So I never grew up eating with this dish, this Korean dish called bolsam, which apparently mm-hmm. is a braised pork shoulder. That's like the traditional way to make it. I didn't even know what this was. I had no idea. But then I saw. Speaking of like just ways that Korean Americans have risen in different cultural context, Korean American chefs have been really mm-hmm. doing their thing, right? So um, David Chang, who is the owner of uh, Momofuku um, and Sambar, which are both uh, become like these, yeah, staple New York destinations um, if you like Asian food and Asian fusion. He had a recipe that was printed in the New York Times a few years back on his take on Bosa, which is instead of braising it, he takes this big hunk of pork shoulder and he puts it in the oven all day. So it basically slow roasts all day. And he then adds like this, you know, crust, like this sugar salt crust. It's unbelievable. It wow. is a great way to feed a crowd. It's so, so, so tasty. And your, your house just smells amazing after you cook it. So he, it's kind of a, it's fun to see these iterations of what's, what have become for our family, you know, Asian comfort foods that are these like fusion or these like, mm. Modernized versions of these classic, yeah, traditional Korean dishes. So anyway, those are a couple. I but. love it. Okay, so my mouth is completely watering. Oh, I'm <laughs> ready to go. Out. <laughs> you can eat Korean barbecue now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have a quick question because you, when you yeah. do the pronunciation of these different dishes, you sound yeah. very Korean. Did you speak Korean growing up at home? Great question. So I did not because. My parents, when I was in preschool, were told, if you let her speak Korean at home, it will impede her educational progress in school. Can you believe it? Like now, of course. In Washington, is that what they? This were was saying? in Washington State when I was in preschool. Yes, going and so what they they would they wouldn't ask me or force me to speak in Korean. They would speak in Korean to one another, mm-hmm. and then you know over time they would speak it to me, but I would never have to speak it back. So my mm-hmm. comprehension is actually really good, but I never had great facility with the language. Um, when I met my husband, who had a completely different story, like his parents really continue to push them, he and his younger brother, to speak in Korean in the house. And so mm-hmm. the, the, he has great facility with the language. And so if I can speak now, it really is as a result of 
marrying into his family and having to learn to communicate with his parents. Yeah. I totally used to their sons speaking to them fully in Korean. So wow. I've had to learn to try to be able to communicate with them. Um, yeah. So I don't know. He'll joke with me and say that I speak Korean with an American accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. If I sound authentic, it's, it probably is not perfect, but it's, yeah, gets me by. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah. Well, I would love to ask for it with you and your experience, you know, just with working and the various roles that you've held over the course of many years, we won't say how many, but many years. <laughs> but I would love to, uh, when you think about uh, leadership in particular, what yeah. what is a, a core leadership lesson for you? Oh boy. Okay. There's a, there's a lot in this topic that we could unpack, but I will, I will say that especially if you are working in a context where um, the leadership is largely non-Asian, um, there are very distinct ways, I think, that we as Asian Americans um, communicate and relate with one another that are unique and distinct that will feel that it will feel jarring that not everyone <laughs> talks that way, relates that way, communicates that way. You might not understand that fully until you are working in a context where that is the case for your particular kind of communication style or relationship style is, is different or in the minority. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that sometimes it's not until you get into those places where you and another person are not matching that you realize that there is a difference and there is a divide. I definitely am someone who thinks very much in a kind of collaborative kind of way, a collectivistic kind of way. That's just my natural orientation whether it's cultural or personality or some combination of both, I, I tend to always think about, you know, the greater whole, right? What's going to be appropriate for the greater organization, the greater, the greater good, so to speak. Mm. And I, I think that for many of my colleagues, that does not come naturally or instinctively to them. It's easier for them to think about like just their own team or their own um, particular goal. It, so we are coming from a, 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 play, a completely different perspective going into a, trying to solve a problem mm. where I'm thinking about it one way, they're thinking about it another way, and we don't even realize that we're not right. matching until we differ. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, things like that come up all the time. How to communicate. Uh, I definitely am still someone who is taken aback when someone is very direct and very blunt with me. Mm. Like someone is just, you know, boom in my face about, X, Y, or Z, that's just, that throws me off my game. It still does. Even though I know it can happen, I have to continually remind myself, especially as I get to know particular colleague styles, that this is not, they're not trying to necessarily take you down. <laughs> it's just the way they communicate. It's so yes. different from the way I communicate that I have to constantly either like psychologically prepare myself going into meetings or conversations. Okay, this person has a very direct way or prefers a very direct way. Don't get thrown off. Mm. I don't remember to stay nimble and be flexible. And like, I have to psychologically even like talk myself up for particular conversations or meetings where I know I'm going to face people with different styles. Mm. So it doesn't throw me off balance. But uh, in the beginning when I wasn't prepared to do that, a lot of those kinds of conversations or meetings or interactions would really throw me off kilter. And I had to learn to try to be more cognizant of those kinds of differences 
more self-aware of where I stand in some of those dynamics and some of those spectrum of behaviors and then where my colleagues sit mm. too. I mean, I just, it, it just takes so much intentionality mm. to try to figure all that out. Um, but if you don't do it, you go into these conversations unprepared in ways that you may regret later. So totally. uh, do you see a difference even, um, interacting with men and women or is this kind of overall overall or how, how does that play out for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly you add the male female dynamic, that's another whole, whole layer. So, so then sometimes those things are intersecting, right? Where you're having right. <laughs> gender piece as well as a culture piece. So yes, that, that can be, that can be part of a whole dynamic as well, but this is interesting. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort through this more for myself. I don't know, Vivian, this is a tricky conversation, but I almost feel like I have more challenges in interacting with women, who, women for the most men, and I can't figure out why that is. Mm. What is it about women in the workplace that we may feel like we have to compete against one another, mm-hmm. coming alongside in solidarity with, with one another? I haven't solved that one yet, and I don't know exactly where that comes from. <laughs> so yes. a complete articulation here, but um, it feels like, I feel like when I'm engaging with my Asian American female friends, I think mm-hmm. so many other Asian American women, we are, we are constantly trying to think of how can we support one another? How can we elevate one another? How can we make room for one another? Yes. Is yes. that better for the whole, whole body? And I don't always know if other women are thinking that way in active ways like are they just thinking about how do I kind of help myself and grow my own this is totally oversimplifying I realize but is there an is there a mentality of I just have to focus on my thing my project my book or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. or is there a natural inclination to think how can I make this better for everyone right I don't know from my experience so far it's been harder to find that in majority culture and easier to find that with especially with my other Asian American female friends. So mm-hmm. that's a tricky dynamic to name and mm-hmm. one that might cause a bit of a stir, <laughs> but oh, yeah, it's what I see and it's what I experience. And if I, if there's a gift that I think Asian American women can kind of bring to the larger conversation, it is very much how to be collaborative and partner with one another and have each other's back and be supportive of one another mm-hmm. as opposed to feeling like we're competing for a piece of the pie you know how can we share that pie yeah. so that everyone gets a piece so yes. I feel like my Asian American female friends do that for one another naturally you mm-hmm. know um, and I, I would love to see that mentality be uh, embraced by a larger whole like, like by the majority so to speak Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's even underscores the need and the value of having diverse leadership teams. Oh, yeah. Of having, uh, you know, just us bringing who we are naturally, I think, helps shed light on a different way. And and sometimes, in the end, a better way, because Mm -hmm. there's more of a collaboration and a, and a, caring of the whole yeah and the greater like we were talking about earlier the greater good 
and how that gets uh, honed better when we all have that. Let's make this great. Yeah. And it's a let, let us. Yeah. Instead of how can I, and then hopefully we stitch it together a little bit. So I, I love that kind of approach altogether. And um, I experienced that too. I think it's interesting, even when we talk about women in the workplace and mm-hmm. women in general, that we can be the best of, you know, advocates and allies for each other. But there is this weird dynamic, I think, with communication sometimes with just women, period, where with men, it's like kind of what you see is what you get. Yeah. But women, it can be kind of nuanced and there's just sometimes the gossip and the backstabbing and you uh-huh. know, these complications that are added in yeah. addition to, you know, values and, and culture and, you know, experience. Yeah. There's just so many things that complicate women, female friendships, female work relationships as well right. that just add a whole, a whole nother something, something. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like my greatest tensions were with people who, for whatever reason, either, I don't know how to explain this. There was, so this is where power comes into the conversation too. There are people who felt like um, I was in some way, shape or form, like a threat, a threat to them. Mm-hmm. I don't Felt like those dynamics, those negative dynamics, played a whole, a bigger role. When I was in a situation of power, like with my, for example, with my team, like those dynamics didn't exist. We created a collaborative culture, supportive culture, and that was easy um, with women, with men, both. But something mm-hmm. about when either the power was considered equal or, um, I don't, so I'm not articulating this very well, but I know that power has a piece of yes, some way where somehow my, my power felt like a threat to someone else's position. Mm. That's when things got really sticky and challenging. And I haven't sorted through all the dynamics of why or how I could have made that better potentially. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. So, well, I think that's so. a huge piece too, that, that power piece. I, I think we often navigate without any awareness, but it affects everything. And, yeah. and we are grabbing for it all the time and yeah. it can just get so messy. So. And because Asian American women are not often in spaces where they have that power, when we are there, it somehow is, um, it just seems to unsettle mm-hmm. all the balance and settle um, the dynamics in a way that you have to be aware that whether you're intending to or not, yeah. your presence at the table can make waves just by you being there. Right, right. <laughs> That's been interesting to navigate too. Um, I, I feel like I, there's another story I wanted to tell, but I want before I forget this one, which is that there was a, a time when I was making a, a, a strong point in a meeting, um, and I wasn't. I'm not. You know, I'm a. I'm an Enneagram nine for anyone who knows <laughs> language. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm not someone who is angry. I don't fly off the handle or any mm-hmm. of those things, but. Uh, this is maybe the Korean side coming in. When I'm passionate about something, I'll stand up for it. And so in this particular meeting, I was making a, a point uh, and, try and, and putting some energy behind it. Not excessive, not angry, not upset. Uh, and plenty of my colleagues in the room have expressed, had expressed very, very strong opinions and do so regularly and have more edge or more, you know, more uh, bluntness to it. But it's fine when they do that. But for some reason, when I did that, it, the way that it was described to me later was from some of my colleagues in the room was, it was like you set up a bomb in the room. Um, hmm. 
at least at least a couple of them perceive it that way and the rest felt like no it wasn't let down at all but what i'm trying to say here is that i think there is something about maybe the stereotype of the asian american woman or the asian mm. that when you in any way shape or form um, present yourself counter to that stereotype it becomes even doubly or triply jarring Mm-hmm. Right, so that whole stereotype of Asian American women or Asian women is quiet and submissive. Right. So any sign of not being that, it it almost reverberates, you know, ten times more, right, right. than anyone right. else might have a strong opinion about something. So I encountered that dynamic on more than one occasion, and I am still trying to puzzle over that one too, because I don't want to not have strength to my words when I need to, but nor do I want people to say, oh my goodness, it was like a bong. <laughs> <laughs> the nine, the, the nine in you is like, no, 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 no. It's okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Oh, totally. Um, and I can't do anything about, I don't know what kinds of either um, unconscious bias or stereotypes mm-hmm. might exist in other people. And I can't live in fear that those kinds of biases or stereotypes will rear their ugly heads when they do. So I have to just go ahead and do who I am. But maybe just even being aware that that can happen, being aware that that kind of dynamic can happen. You're in a room as an Asian American woman speaking or leading or conducting yourself in a meeting, that your words and the way you speak them may have a different impact than you intend because of some of those invisible forces at work in the meeting or in the organization. So. That is so good. And I imagine many of our listeners are nodding as they are listening to this podcast on their commute home or whatever and experiencing that very dynamic that you just described. So, yeah, maybe it's helpful just to know and name that that can exist. And you may not, you're not imagining things. If you mm-hmm. feel like, oh, why are people reacting to me this way? It's not like I said or didn't anything all that extreme. Mm-hmm. It's hitting them that way. And yeah. it may be because of whatever it might be. It may be because of these some, some, some of these unconscious kinds of biases or stereotypes people are bringing into the conversation. That's great to be aware of. Okay, one final question as we wrap up. Um, You know, uh, not all of my uh, interviewees, is that the right word? (laughs) English is my second language, I don't know the words. Anyway, uh, the women that I'm interviewing, not all of them are moms. A a number of them are. But what is is something that you want your sons to um, take with them into the, the next generation? I mean, you're, obviously we can't control that, but what is your hope that they would uh, be able to embrace of their heritage, ah. of their roots that, they, that you would love to see um, passed on to the next generation? Mm. Yeah, so I feel very fortunate that my boys are, they know that I am a leader in various spaces and places that I'm not afraid to speak when I need to speak that uh, I am not afraid to do that when it, when I'm called to do so. And I want them to see models of Asian American women using their voice and not being afraid to do that and not feeling like that's wrong or, or that's like a bomb exploding. I want them to see comfortable with Asian American women leading and not feel like that's anathema or an anomaly, but that it's normal. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that they will carry that, you know, into the future and be supportive of Asian American women as they see them in Mm -hmm. leadership, as they go down, down their own journeys, uh, that it won't feel odd or strange. 
I'm hopeful that they will not just see Asian American women, but also Asian American men, you know, in leadership and feel like that's normal and yes. not something unusual and that they will feel empowered to be leaders in the context that they are called to be leaders. I hope that they will be able to bring a sense of cultural intelligence and facility to the kinds of uh, spaces and places they'll be in their friendship groups. And we, we talk about those kinds of dynamics even now, since most all my boys have friendship groups where they are, tend to be the only Asian American. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? How will they relate differently within their friends? How do we talk about family differently? Mm-hmm. How do we even talk about food and eat food differently? Um, what are some of our cultural norms that may be unusual um, or different or unique? And my kids have said things like, wow, all of our friends love coming to our house because we do food right. <laughs> they always, like, all their friends love it when we have, like, we host the group to come over because, yeah, we're going to do an amazing spread and make sure they have more than enough food, like an abundance of food. And that's important. Um, so even even naming that, that's, a, that's not just an accidental thing. This is a cultural value of hospitality mm. and part of being Korean, part of being Asian is mm. to own that. And so even though we can talk about these things when they're young, hopefully it'll help them have some cultural facility when they're moving into their spaces of being working in teams or working in a workplace or um, working in school and all those places where it will be natural for them to talk about it. Hopefully better, even more so than me. I feel like I'm learning a lot of these lessons like later in life. Mm-hmm. Looking back on like my college years, I now I understand, oh, okay, that's why. That's why I struggled in various ways, in various groups and teams I was a part of. I did not understand these cultural mm-hmm. dynamics at all. Mm-hmm. I thought if you just put your head down and you work hard, mm-hmm. good things will happen. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like the Asian work ethic at work, right? That, right? That's all you need to do. But that's just a small piece of it. You have to know how to operate in organizational contexts and structures. You have to know how to identify different ways that people are relating and communicating. And it's not just about working hard. Although, of course, I would say that's hugely important. But it's not enough. You have to have some political savvy. You have to have some relational savvy. You have to have cultural intelligence. All those things. I didn't have that as a younger person. So I feel like I'm learning those lessons later in life. I love that because what you're describing to me is, again, um, our value as Asians, that we are always, you know, grateful for what we had, but we're trying to improve what we are currently in with the hope that it'll launch further the yeah. next generation. And that's just such a part of our our collective way of yes. even time. It's like this, uh, there's the honoring of the sacrifices made by our parents, uh, but recognizing that they didn't have language for what we are currently living out and experiencing. And then our hope of working it through in real time, Mm -hmm. but with the hope that that would then benefit future generations. Yes. I love that. Well, we are winding up now and just, I'm so thankful, Helen, for you taking time to share. It's just very evident to me that uh, not only is this important to you, but it's been uh, a journey that you've been on. And I, I just appreciate that your, your willingness to uh, verbalize, express, and even your humility in saying, I don't have it all together and I'm still figuring <laughs> out. It just, I think it gives all of 
all of us as Asian American women, kind of the space to begin to evaluate and to think and to kind of um, sift through our experiences and it's putting words to our experience that's that may or may not have been there before. So thank you for validating. Thank you for uh, being willing to uh, open up your life to us and um, you are so fabulous as a speaker <laughs> and as a, I, as a mom, wife, and friend. And so I'm just grateful for you. And I'm so grateful that the listeners of this podcast have an opportunity to get to know you better. So um, where can they find you? And um, yes. But yes. Well, thank you, Vivian, for having me and just even having these conversations. I think they're going to be so, so, so valuable for those who listen. I think they're, they're going to be very empowering and encouraging. So I appreciate you for taking the time to create this safe space for conversations that aren't typical out there in the world. So this is, this is great that you're doing this and I'm glad to be a small part of it. So thank you for inviting me. Um, to find me, Twitter is an easy place, at Helen Lee Books is my handle. It's also the, the name of my website, which is woefully, um, woefully out of date, but you could find me there <laughs> as well. <laughs> so those are probably the easiest places to find me. Instagram, same thing, at Helen Lee Books. So just remember Helen Lee Books. I, I love books. I always have and always will. And I work at a book publishing company and do all kinds of things there. So that will always be part of my reality. And hopefully I'll write more like you, Vivian. You are a model of inspiration. Absolutely need to write, Helen. You are one of the clearest. Uh, I just, I, lo- I have loved, literally have loved everything I have ever read written by you because you oh. write with clarity and it's just sharp and meaningful and nuanced it's just you're so gifted so uh, yes i'm i am i'm cheering you on there's all of those books inside you that i will yes encourage you to keep i don't know when you're gonna have the time but at some point you will i know and so i'm i'm grateful for that and look forward to you putting more out there for all of us to um, learn from so anyway thank you for being on the show and um so grateful for you it's been a pleasure thank you Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Someday Is Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is here.